two or three of us gathered, we are here in his name, under his authority, under his word, and therefore Jesus Christ is here with us by his Holy Spirit. And it's, a, it's a tremendous uh, blessing to recall as we come, come to the word of God. So open up into Revelation chapter 3 now, as we come to uh, uh, the second half of uh, the letters uh, that Jesus has spoken to his churches in the book of Revelation, those seven churches that were around uh, Asia Minor. Uh, back in the first century. So I'm going to read uh, the, the text first up and then I will sit down to preach. <clears throat> Revelation chapter 3 verses 1 to 6. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Wake up, uh, uh, sorry, uh, remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis. People who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of God, and may be blessed in our midst. Well... Today what we find is the comatose church, a church that is in fact asleep and dying in many respects already dead. I don't know uh, whether you've seen the great, one of the greatest movies ever produced, uh, not the, the sequels, uh, but the movie The Matrix. Uh, any amens? Uh, and, and what you find out in The Matrix is that all humans are living their, you know, the whole human race is, is, believes themselves to be very much alive, living their great human lives according to the, the normalcy of the life in the 90s uh, uh, on, on planet Earth. But in fact, their bodies are all in a comatose state and their mind is in this artificial intelligence simulation wherein when they live and experience all these things, it just feeds through their comatose bodies in the lab, just feeds energy to their enemy who are these artificial, intelligent, and powered robots. Great movie, jump on it, you'll love it. Today, what we're being warned against is that there is a possibility that the church exists in exactly the same situation. There can be local churches who believe themselves to be so alive, so working, so, so much enjoying the blessings of the gospel and obeying the commands of Jesus and doing what churches ought to be doing and loving on each other and doing life together. They're doing all of that, but in fact, Jesus would look at them and say, you're in fact dead asleep and your enemy is not just not attacking you, he's actually already within your gates and his attack is that you are asleep. And in your sleepiness, in your lethargy, in your comatose state, you are in fact empowering him. So this is what we find. We look at the church of Sardis and we find a comatose church. It's, it's fitting that this actually is the, the rebuke against this church in this city. Because this, this city, in history, in the military history of its town, had actually become... It was sort of proverbial to speak of Sardis as the, the, the town that was conquered in its sleep. Yeah, there's sort of a, a you know, military slang would be used to sort of, you know, if your town got conquered when you were supposed to be so safe because everybody was asleep at the wheel, you did a Sardis. You know, you, you might have uh, had somebody in your footy team growing up or somebody in your class and they were so adept at doing stupid stuff, you called doing that kind of stupid thing, doing a, a, a bomb, doing a James, right? You see somebody fall down and break their leg on a slight slope in a kid's playground, you can say, oh, they've done a Tom. It's so embarrassing, right? Well, militaries spoke that way in the ancient world about using the name of Sardis because Sardis was in this beautifully well-protected, enormously walled, fortified city, and on one of the uh, one of the sides of the city was actually on, on a huge cliff. Now, you don't need to be a military historical uh, uh, expert to know that you just can't climb cliffs with an entire an entire army. So, so that is an enormous help. When you're a city on a huge hill, surrounded by a wall, and then one of your faces is a huge cliff, it's, it's, it's absolutely impossible that you would be uh, uh, sacked, that you would be penetrated by another army. And yet, 
Herodotus in the year uh, tells us in his history that in the year 546 BC, the Persian general and king Cyrus was coming through the area and he came up to Sardis, which was entirely impenetrable, entirely impossible to get into. And while they were camping at quite a safe distance, he, he offered great rewards to whichever guy can, can climb the cliff on the back end of Sardis. They knew they weren't getting in. But he threw out a, a lottery ticket, he threw out a, a reward. Anybody can climb the, the, the cliff and, and get on top of the wall somehow, I'll give you a huge reward. They, they obviously wrote it off and they tried to think of other ways of getting in, but there was one man by the name of Heroides who saw one night, as he was watching the wall, as he was keeping his eye on the cliff and sort of planning a way that he might be able to climb up and get for himself accolades and rewards and riches, he saw a soldier walking along the top of the wall, drop his helmet, and it fell down the cliff and landed at the bottom. And the soldier turned back around, disappeared behind the wall for a bit, and popped out through a secret little passageway on the cliff. And Heroides could sit back in the dark and watch this man traverse the entire cliff in a secret passageway all the way to the bottom, pick up his helmet, and climb back up. After seeing that, he mapped out the, 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 the path that he could see, the secret passageway. He took men with him. He led the way. And the following night, they climbed up the wall where it was not being guarded because you don't guard a wall that backs onto a cliff. And him and his men could climb in and sack the city, opening the door for the rest of the Persian army. It was an amazing tale of military triumph. And it would, you'd think Sardis would learn its lesson because that is extremely embarrassing to be sacked in your sleep at the exact point of your city's wall that was supposed to be the strongest. And yet, 307 years later, in the year 200 BC, it happened again. The historian Polybius tells us that Antiochus' army was coming through in the year 200. And they mounted ladders in the night. They mounted ladders up this cliff in the secret, perceived that they got all the way to the top and climbed in secretly while the rest of the army uh, uh, threw a, a fake attack at the city wall. They went through, they plundered people, they murdered many of the army, they went, they opened the town, and the town belonged to Antiochus from then on. Sardis is a historical uh, lesson to military conquestors to, to not rest, not assume that you're safe just because you have a strong point. They became a lesson to generals to not be careless. But to be, it was impossible to be too careful because the embarrassment that raised up in Sardis' history was tremendous. As we said, they became a proverb, they became a byword, they became a mockery. They've, you've gone and done a Sardis, being conquered precisely where you thought that you were the strongest. This cliff face was their strongest point, but it became their weak point because they were not attentive to it. And in this letter that we just read, Jesus speaking to Sardis, we realize that there is an unnerving reality that many churches exist today, right now, meeting on the Lord's Day, that think they have many strengths, but in, certain, in fact are weak. They think that they are living and that they are active, but in fact moments, they are only moments from being totally overthrown. And in fact, we take Sardis' uh, uh, analogy for a moment, the enemy's already inside, lulling them to sleep. So look at verse 1. The second half of verse 1 is in fact where we're going to start. We'll come back to the very beginning in a little bit. But in the end of verse 1, where Jesus begins to speak and says, I know your works. This is where we meet the Contos church. He says, I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Now, there's five out of the seven letters where Jesus says, I know your works. The other two, he does say, I know your something, right? We've met a few already. In Ephesus, he said, I know your works. And the point was that they are working hard. They are doing their job. They are, they are doing much, but they have let slip their zealous gospel proclamation. And we got to Smyrna, and Jesus doesn't say, I know your works. He says, I know your tribulation, because they were under persecution, and he commanded them to be faithful to death. We met Pergamum, and he doesn't say, I know your works to them. He says, I know where you dwell, that you're in Satan's backyard. And then their rebuke was that they were letting Satan get into the church, and they were tolerating it. But then to Thyatira, Jesus again says, I know your works. But their rebuke was that they were tolerating the Jezebel's teaching. And he's going to say, I know your works to the future churches as well. But right here, you get to Sardis. And when all of the other churches were getting these rebukes and you know getting a mixed level of rebuke and commendation, 
The expectation was when they read Sardis's letter, when they read in Sardis's letter, remember all these seven letters are on the whole book of Revelation, they're getting sent around to all the other seven churches. We should be fully expected that when the, the letter of Sardis is read in the other churches, they were expecting Sardis up on that hill to get a glowing, amazing A-plus review from Jesus. Jesus says, I know your works. And they probably rolled their eyes and went, yeah, everybody does. They're great. They're, you know, we've, we've all, if we take it at face value, you know, we've got to believe Jesus. We've got these issues going on. But Sardis is pretty top-notch. But Jesus isn't saying, I know your works, like he does in the other letters, to say, I can see your works. I see that they are great. I see that they are glowing. I, I want to commend you because I can see them. He says, I know your works, and immediately follows it up with, and they stink. He says, I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive. Right? They're living waters church. They're living church. They're, they're spirit-filled church, whatever they're going to call themselves. They have the name. The word for reputation literally means name. They have the name of being the living church, right? They go to ignite church, a live church, whatever you want to call it. But in fact, Jesus says, you are dead. They're not going to change their name to that, are they? Necronic church, dead church. Jesus says, you are in fact dead. As far as your works go, you are dead. Jesus says, wake up, strengthen what remains that is about to die, and here's the why. Why does he call their works dead? For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. This rebuke would have been a total shock to the other seven churches. But here is Jesus saying, your works are not complete. Now, if you're an employer, or you have ever had a co-worker, or you're a parent, you know the fact that unfinished jobs do not count as jobs. Somebody comes up to you and says, I did half of seven of my chores, mum. Or I did half of the seven jobs you gave to me, boss. Or I did three, I, I did half of the four contracts you assigned to me, my boss. They are going to count that as having done zero. You know this if you're in uni. If you say, I did 50% of the, of the assignment you assigned to me, you're going to get a fat fail. And so it is that Jesus is saying their works are incomplete. Maybe in your version it says imperfect. It's the same meaning. The real gist of it is that they have half. They have an appearance of a work but they are not complete to the end, so I don't count it as a work. We all know if you do half a rep in the gym, you did zero reps. If you fail halfway up doing a rep, you don't get to count that 150 bench press as one because you did part of it. You don't get to count races, right? If I did 10% of a marathon, I did that six times, I don't get to say I did six marathons. I did zero marathons. This is how we need to think of the Christian life. Starting something does not count as doing something. Sardis is only obeying to agree, and then they're stopping. So there's some level that they're doing what they're supposed to be doing, but they're stopping halfway through, and they're doing enough to be able to say to themselves, we're obeying Jesus, but they're stopping short of Jesus being able to say, you're obeying me. You have to note this, if you're a note taker, if you want to think about Sardis, maybe you want to have one thing to pin Sardis in your mind, the sin of Sardis is the fear of man. The reason Sardis is failing at all these jobs is because they have the fear of men. They're doing just enough to play church. They're doing just enough to, to look like Christians without making a single difference for the kingdom. Without putting a single dent in the kingdom of darkness. They're doing just enough to tick the boxes, but not enough to tick off the world. All right? So Jesus could say to them, you're Nicolaitan and free, right? You don't have those heretics. You're Jezebel free. None of them are there. In military language, we could think, yeah, there's no enemy trying to pound down the front door of this, of this church. There's no one trying to throw them down, but it's not because you contended. It's not because Sardis is so good at defending the faith and standing up for Jesus and contending for the faith. It's not that. It's because they are such a weak target, they're not even a threat to the devil. They are keeping themselves asleep by incomplete works, and therefore, they are not even a, 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 a city on the devil's map to try and conquer. He has already crept in while they were unguarded, while they slept, just like Sardis was lost to the Syrians, uh, to the Persians, and to Antiochus. So what's the devil's current attack looking like in Sardis? What does the devil's current attack look like in many churches that fit the Sardine model? 
I couldn't figure out in all the readings that I could do what they called people who lived in Sardis. It's not Sardinians, that's a different place. I'm going to call them Sardines because that's, that's stuck in my head. <laughs> what is the devil's approach, attack, on a Sardine church? It's simple nothingness. He has no attack because his attack is nothingness. They're a church in a comatose state. They're not in a heated battle over doctrine. They're not in a heated battle for, for the gospel. They're not, they're not under strict or intense persecution. They're just in the quiet sway of a slow drift down a steady stream on a hammock on a summer's afternoon, falling asleep, where nothing is fought over, nothing is conquered, nothing is overcome. There is no mission, no drive, no life. That's this church. There are immediate similarities with that to many common day churches. Not, not even just out there. Let's say there is immediate similarities between that and the church we can easily become if we are not keeping ourselves by the Spirit awake and strengthened, as Jesus says. We can become this church very, very easily. Half a generation, five years, ten years, a little bit of mission drift, and the church embodies this, right? It's the kind of church who have a reputation for being alive. Okay, they have vibrant church services, apparently, the website tells us. We have vibrant church services, contemporary worship, and everybody is welcome. And a vibrant community of fellowship. They'll tell us that. That's literally their reputation. They have playgroup. And you know what? Kids come and play in a group. They have a youth group. Guess what? Youth come together and they hang out in a group. They have a women's picnic, and women have a picnic. They do a Bible study, and people get together, have dinner, and talk a bit about the Bible. But to be real missional, to reach the city, they opened up a coffee shop. And guess what? The community bought coffees. They started a school, the kids went to school. They support a missionary, and a missionary goes to church in another country. They have every church, they have every Sunday a church service. And you come in, and a guy talks a bit about the Bible, nothing too harsh, nothing too soppy, just right in the middle of that sweet spot. It was nice. You know, you never confront it, it's never ugly. You send an email if you get offended. It's just comfortable, nice, and you, you enjoy the fellowship, and you stroll on home. I hope I did not just describe to you your ideal church. I just described to you a church that makes me physically ill to think to pastor that church. That is a failure of a church. Because, because what lacks in a church is not any of those things. Those things are not failures in themselves. What is a failure is that they're doing those things to make up for the lack of winning souls and building the kingdom and getting in trouble with the enemy. So they do all these things. They spend all the money on all that stuff and stuff just goes along. And the kids go to school and the people buy their coffee and you make investments and they build a new building and that's awesome. They're just having a great time not building the kingdom. Their works are incomplete. The church that exists to give its people somewhere to go to church is a church that has no reason to exist. If a church exists because the people in that church need somewhere to go to church, that church should not exist. The church exists so the people in this church can fight and win for the souls outside of the church they can come in and, by the power of Jesus, build the kingdom. That's why a church ought to exist. This does not exist so you could go to church close to home. This church does not exist so that, so that some Christians on the Gold Coast can go to church close to home. This church has been planted such that Jesus might use us, empower us, and send us to build that kingdom through the winning of souls and the Gold Coast. A church needs a mission. Let me say this, I would rather be pastoring a church in Thyatira, where Jezebel's running loose and they've got to fight a feminist pastor. I would rather be pastoring a church in Pergamum, where sexual immorality is going crazy. But we are enough of a threat to the kingdom that, he's, that the devil sends in those sorts of attacks. I would rather that than me and Sardis, where everything is sweet, everything is a cozy little dream, and Jesus says, they're dead. A church needs a mission, it needs a direction, it needs a drive, it needs a water fight. Paul says to fight the good fight of the faith. Jude tells us to contend for the faith, win souls. Last week's blessing to the church in Thyatira, if you go, go back and look in uh, verse uh, 20, 26 and 7, 
The blessing that he gave to that church was, to those who conquer, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with the rod of iron. That's massive. Like we touched on it last week, I need to drill it home again. The gospel is not just about what happens to you after you die. Its blessings are far greater than that. By faith in Jesus Christ and his finished work, you are justified. You are adopted and you're brought into the kingdom of God. And you're given a responsibility in this world, in this kingdom, to be building the kingdom for God's dear son. That's part of God. It's not a distraction to the gospel. It's not secondary to the gospel. It's not a trailer on the gospel. It's part of the blessing of the gospel. When I say Jesus died for you, it's not just so you can go to heaven when you die. It's so that your soul now may be justified with God and immediately you're enlisted in his army. You join his kingdom. You build the temple. That's part of the blessing of the gospel. If it doesn't sound like a blessing, you're not a person who can see the kingdom with born again eyes. You need to be born again. We must avoid at all costs the sin of dreaming of a church that doesn't need us to serve on a Sunday. Do not dream. Crucify. Paul put a bullet in the head of the dream of going to a church that you can just chill out. You don't have to serve so hard. You don't have to help so hard. You don't have to be working in the guts of the engine that gets souls one. Don't dream of that. That's a sin. And Jesus gives that dream to you as a judgment. Instead, dream of a church that meets the needs of the lost and builds the kingdom of Jesus. You need to realize that it's in fact more advantageous for the devil to have a comatose church in an area than to have no church in an area. Because when there's a comatose church in an area, unsaved people go to that church, hear a little bit about Jesus, maybe, maybe they're told Jesus loves them and died from them, as much of the gospel they get. They sort of mingle around with Christians. And then they can go home, never come to church again, and go, yeah, I, I tried the church thing, I tried the Jesus, I've done that. I know what that's on offer, and it's really not, you know, they've done the church thing. Or in fact, Christians in the area go to that church, and they are lulled into the comatose state, and the resources that they give, the skills that they have, the gifts of the Spirit, are funneled into the drain of that church. It's like a, uh, I was talking to somebody this week, it can cost up to $2 million a day, $2 million a day to keep a large ship in the dry dock. Being neutral is never free. It costs a church enormous amounts to be able to exist, meet needs, and not serve the kingdom. It's a funnel that goes straight into the drain. It steals resources. And then other churches also think, oh, we don't need to plant a church in that area. We don't need to send pastors and evangelists into the area. They've already got a church. They've already got a witness for Jesus. All of these damages happen, and the devil smiles when there is a comatose church in an area. And so look at verse 2. Jesus says, first two words of verse 2, Wake up! Wake up and strengthen what remains. There is a little bit of meat still on the skeleton that is not entirely dead and necrotic. That needs to be given therapy. That needs to be medically helped. That needs to be done. Whatever you can do to get spirit back into those muscles and strengthen what remains. What a church like Sardis lacks, what any church in this day lacks that looks like Sardis, is alertness, an awakeness, and a militancy that strives to conquer the world and see souls pour into the kingdom of the Savior, Jesus Christ. I, I've, I've lost count at this point. How many people have told me they would come to Hope Church, they would enjoy my preaching or the preaching of Hope, they, they, they would stay but are now leaving if we were a little bit less militant. Love that word. Too many army analogies, too much language of taking enemies, conquering, just too, too much force. I say, see you later. Consider yourself booted from the army. Dishonorably discharged. Go find somewhere. Find a hammock. Find a hammock. Find a Sardis church. They're waiting for you. They've got a massage therapist waiting for you. They'll have more comfy chairs, I'm sure. <laughs> the church ought to be militant. We need to get out of our thinking that, that there's some churches that are like that and different churches can have different vibes. And, and that's true. But militancy, obeying Jesus, who calls himself a king and a warrior, more times than you can count in scripture, that Jesus... We ought not to think that, that that part of him 
is is a is a is a is an optional extra maybe the church ought to be militant so look at verse three this is the need this is what the comatose church needs verse three remember then what you received and heard keep it and repent if you will not wake up i will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour i come against you i love that jesus solution here is not to give them all this brand new information the thing that they need to get back in their mind to get out of a comatose state is the very thing that they heard at first it's the gospel don't we hear today that the gospel can put no obligation on people the gospel you know if you're a gospel church you won't be a, a militant church i've heard that if you're a gospel church you won't be a commanding preacher or you won't hear demanding sermons you'll hear you'll just hear loving blessing uh you got this jesus is all for you kind of because that's what the gospel is apparently jesus doesn't give them new information as if to say remember what you heard and received the gospel but also do some works he says if you remember correctly i did not send paul into ephesus to preach to the whole nation of asia this is probably when when Sardis was planted, the church of Sardis was when Paul was in Ephesus back in Acts 19. Maybe he traveled to Sardis, maybe people came to Ephesus and then went back to Sardis, we don't know. Somehow the gospel got to Sardis in that year and a half, you know, two and a bit year period when Paul was preaching in Ephesus. And it's as if Jesus is saying to them, remember what you heard. I don't think you'll remember Paul preaching, believe in the name of Jesus, be saved, and then enjoy your spiritual retirement. Find your needs met in a comfy church and complain whenever the pastor offends you. Jesus is saying, no, 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 remember what you heard. It's not like the gospel slows you down and then you need a, a little sprinkle of legalism just to get you active again. It's that the gospel drives us into activity. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, God gave me more grace, therefore I worked harder than them all. Grace which forgives your sins, empowers you for mission. It's as if Jesus is saying, I sent Paul and he preached the gospel of salvation for sinners and entry into the kingdom of God. And this is the gospel. This is what every church, especially the comatose, need to hear and remember as Jesus just commanded. Remember what you, uh, 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 what did he say in verse 3? Remember then what you received and heard. That is the gospel. That we are all by nature sinners. Every single one of us are sinners and rebels against God and against His law. The moment we are conceived till the moment we take our last breath, we are sinners against God and His law, and we are refusing to acknowledge Him. Our lack of faith in Him, our, our willing to live our own lives, our own way, despite it being against God's word and against our conscience, that is sin. And for it, God will send our souls to an eternal hell. We die physically and we die eternally spiritually. This is the due penalty because of our sin, but in his love, this love that has conquered evil, this great love that God has shown, he sent his son to become one of us, to live as a human, but without sin, be perfect, live under the law in a way we never could. Tick it off every command of the law in absolute perfection. He never knew sin. He was never touched by sin until the day he was. He wasn't touched by sin because he, he committed sin. He was touched by sin because it was laid on his shoulders. And he carried our sin up to the cross. And there he was punished by God for us, for our sins, in our place. Jesus was crushed under God's wrath. He died for our sins. And then he rose three days later to prove that his atonement was finished. He rose three days later to prove that death and hell and sin and Satan were conquered and have no teeth anymore. And to prove that he has just started the kingdom. He rose back to life so that he can go and sit down on his throne to rule over the kingdom. And from that throne, he, he gives repentance. He gives the Holy Spirit to everybody who believes in him. To all those that God has chosen. And ruling as king, who is saving people, he makes us into a kingdom that works to bring others into the kingdom. He uses us to be people who speak his word that builds the kingdom of Christ on earth. We are his agents for ruling the kingdom. That's part of the gospel. That's part of the good news and the blessing. That Jesus doesn't just forgive you. He doesn't just make you a slave in the courts of heaven when you die. He makes you right now a royal staff member, a royal child, a king and a priest in his holy temple and church. 
So Jesus is saying to the sardines, you remember hearing that, right? You remember hearing not just get forgiven and go to heaven when you die, but this life matters to serve. You remember hearing that, right? You heard it, you received it, you've forgotten it, you've gone to sleep, you're hoping to hold out the saved by grace ticket that was punched on your conversion and baptism day. I'm saying, get to work or you are dead. Jesus is telling Sardis to repent, to wake up, to get strengthened again, and to get back to the royal and holy obligations that the gospel puts on them. It's not the gospel plus something else. Those obligations are woven into the gospel. Get active. That's what we commanded you at first. And he says there, following your, uh, verse 3 onwards, If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I come against you. There's, there's at least five different New Testament uh, uh, times, times in the New Testament when Jesus uses the language of, I'm coming like a thief, I'm coming in the night, you won't know when. Uh, and they all refer to different occurrences. Some of them occur to when Jesus came and judged the Jews who had killed him in AD 70. Some of them refer to the end times when Jesus comes back on that final day of human history. This one refers to something that will be repeated throughout history, even going on still today, when Jesus comes to his church in judgment, a local church in judgment, and it's not the end times appearance, it's that he's coming to them to, to, to weed out the sinners, to, to move out the unrepentant, and to, to, to purify his church. And the reason we know it's not the end times appearance is because he says, if you don't wake up, I'll come like a thief, and you won't know when. Which means that if they do wake up, he won't come like a thief. So we should all hope that Sardis doesn't wake up, otherwise Jesus isn't going okay. you know? Jesus won't come back and fulfill his promises if the church is holy. But that's not what we should get. There is a set day, Jesus said, when he will return. But then what is held out to us day by day, year by year, generation by generation, church by church, is if you don't wake up now and repent, I'm going to come against you while you sleep like Sardis had happened. With Cyrus, the Persian, coming against you. If you don't wake up, you'll be conquered. You won't know, you'll just wake up and the church will be thrown to its enemies. Don't keep comforting yourself saying, I'm sure we'll be fine. Jesus just wouldn't be like that. I'm sure we'll be okay. Stop comforting yourself if you're in sin. If you're an individual in this state, do not comfort yourself, but repent. And then there's this encouragement and a promise. Look at verse 4. From verse 4 through to verse 6. To the end, Jesus says in verse 4, Yet you have some still, a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Jesus is saying that there is in fact a few people in the church. The church as a whole is dead. There's a couple of people on the bones. There's a couple of meat, a couple of muscles in the body that are not in fact fully dead. This is somewhat of encouragement. They're the, they're the ones who are pestering their pastor for more Bible teaching. They're the ones who are pestering their fellowship group for more Bible study, for more edifying conversation instead of watching a movie and trying to pull out the gospel themes from them. They're the, they're the ones who are the faithful few in the whole. They have not, as he says here, the beautiful picture, soiled their garments. That's gross language. It's not that they have a little bit of mud on the bottom of their robes. It's that they're in, the insides of their, of their robes have human fecal stains. That, that's the picture. They also brought up in James. It's that they've, filthy, they've got themselves filthy from within and from without. They have soiled their garments. The soiling is, is the idea of the, the, the deadness resulting from the fear of man. They have, in the book of Revelation, the constant theme is the garments. Whenever you see robes or garments, it's always symbolizing some kind of righteous deeds. We wear right, Jesus' righteousness because we've been given them. But we also have our own deeds that we put on and we wear. They are, they are our righteous deeds. Well, well, because their works are incomplete, Jesus is saying, you have great robes on and they're filthy. It's almost good, but it's actually dirty. You're doing some good things, but it's not complete because of your fear of man and therefore it's a soiled garment and you may as well be naked. In fact, it's worse than being naked. The Romans were the persecuting party and we hear nothing in this letter about the Romans persecuting them because there was no point. They were keeping themselves under wraps. There was a huge Jewish population. The largest synagogue in the ancient world was in Sardis. Now, if you've been remembering our history lessons, as we've been looking at each of these books, you start realizing the Jews were one of the most pesky, pestering, persecuting people in the societies that the Christians lived. 
You're going to have massive Jewish population in a city. You're going to have huge pressure on the church. And here we find no mention of them. Probably, here's my theory, the Romans and the Jews had put enough pressure on Sardis that Sardis obeyed Jesus right up until Rome said stop. They obeyed Jesus right up until the Jews said, that's not very uh, uh, kosher of you, and they stopped. So they're doing good stuff, but it's all, it's all limited and constrained by what the society allows them to do. We need to realize that if you obey Jesus as much as the world lets you obey Jesus, it's the world you're obeying, not Jesus. If you believe and speak and act out for Jesus up until your friends or your colleagues or your workplace or your family tell you to stop, it's not Jesus you're obeying, it's the, it's the world. He's not your master. The world is. This was the problem of Sardis. They were doing only enough to keep their heads under. And Jesus tells them to wake up. Now, now it's clear some of them, this is what we've been seeing here, some of them in the, in the church were not doing it. They had the white robes. They were worthy to, work with, to walk with Jesus again. They were doing the right thing. But that's not enough. It's not enough for a church to have a few that are awake. I, I think sometimes we can think of repentance like right, Sunday afternoon. We're all Christians. We're all good Sabbatarians. Everybody goes home after your morning service and you have the most blessed nap you can have all week, a post-lunch Sunday afternoon sleep. And you go home, and maybe it's just because I'm a dad, I've, I've picked up this habit, but you go home and you, you lie down and you're asleep. You know, when I'm asleep, I'm not a Christian anymore. So I'm asleep, and then somebody knocks at the door. I'm supposed to think, I may be entertaining an angel. I should help them. No, I, I, I wish I had a booby trap in my front door. I want them to go away. I, I, I don't care about them. I'm asleep. I'm napping. It's a Sunday. But it's awesome when, like, my wife's still awake, Joy's still awake, I can be sleeping, or if she's sleeping in the boys' room, keeping them asleep, and you hear the knock, what do you think? Or maybe you still live at home with your parents, you're sleeping, you hear a knock, what do you think? I hope somebody else gets it. And you sit there for a few minutes, and the fingers are crossed, you're half asleep, you go, somebody else get it, and then you hear mom, <sighs> open the door, walk up to the front, and yeah, somebody else got it, right? Somebody else got it, I can stay asleep. When Jesus calls to the church to say, wake up, repent, it's not enough that a few of them get up and answer the call. It's more like a fire alarm going off. And I hope none of you, while sleeping, especially parents, hear a fire alarm go off and think, oh, somebody turned it off. We're good. When a fire alarm goes off, every single person has the exact same urgency and necessity to get up, wake up, be alert, get out. That's what Jesus' call for repentance is like. It's never enough to say, I'm still in these sins. I'm still allowing my sin life to destroy my prayer life. I'm still allowing my sin life to make me feel guilty and shameful so I don't share the gospel and I don't speak out boldly and I don't do anything to Jesus because I feel bad about my sin. I know I'm like that, but I have a zealous friend. My pal knows the gospel off, you know, right off by heart. He knows the, the, the Bible is just right here. He's bleeding it out. Now, my church is evangelizing. I've never shared the gospel in my life, but I belong to an evangelistic church. I've never thought about how I might give my life to Christ, but we support a missionary that does. It's never enough to do that. The flames will find you if you are still asleep in your sin. Jesus says, wake up. Yes, there's some among you that are worthy to walk with me. That's not enough to save the church. All must listen and obey. And before we go forward, as we look at these closing promises that Jesus made, look back at how Jesus introduces himself. We did skip this line. Each time Jesus introduces himself to a church, he does so in a way that is relevant for that church. The way he introduces them himself to this church, when he's saying, you need to wake up, you need to get back into works. You need to realize that you are kingdom people with a kingdom responsibility to save souls and upset the kingdom of darkness. He first introduces himself as he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. We saw that the seven stars represent the church leaders and therefore by representation, the churches. And the seven spirits, the language of seven in Revelation means fullness, wholeness, per perfection. And the language of seven spirits comes up multiple times in the book of Revelation. It always just means, theologians agree, the seven spirits are the Holy Spirit, the one Holy Spirit of God. Jesus is saying, I hold the church that needs the Holy Spirit, and I hold the Holy Spirit that empowers the church. 
Jesus is giving hard commands to the church to obey. He's giving direct commands for the church to get up and hear the call of. But he is saying that he is the one who holds what they need to obey what he's commanding. The answer is not that Jesus is saying to them, you're over there, you're, at, you're away from me, you're not walking with me, you're soiled, you're on the outside. Do something, get yourself back up and go out and do what I sent you to do. That's not his command. The command is wake up, come back to me. I have the Holy Spirit you need to make you clean, to empower you. This language of the seven spirits, this, this, this imagery that, that John has been seeing in the book of Revelation is pulled right out of Zechariah 4, where Zechariah saw the, a vision of the Holy Spirit and he was told, in answer to what the heck am I seeing, he was told, as he's being given the commission, go and obey, he was first told, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. The Christian individual and the church corporate must never seek to try and go out and obey or, or go back and repent without first running to Jesus in confession and praying for the strength of the spirit. You can do nothing in the kingdom without the spirit. It's not a kingdom of this world. It's not a kingdom of the flesh. It's a kingdom you can't see. And your physical abilities, your reputation, you have no strength to do anything that the Spirit only can do. Therefore, as Jesus is saying these commands, he's wanting them to know, I'm holding the fuel you need. Come back to me and I will give to you the Holy Spirit. And here he gives these amazing promises in the, in the following verses. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. Just like the faithful ones. The ones who are currently conquering, you can join them if you repent and, and conquer. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I'll never blot his name out of the book of life. I'll confess his name before my father and before his angels. This language helps us understand the sin that, 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 uh, that Sardis is in. I think back to Matthew chapter 10, when Jesus told his followers, don't fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. So when Jesus in this letter to Sardis picks up the language of, I'll confess you if you conquer to my Father and his angels, we should be picking up, Jesus is using the same theme. If you fear man, you won't confess me. You won't live with me and identify with my commands enough to get in trouble. You'll keep your life safe and I will deny you before my Father. If your works continue to be incomplete, chopped up, conditioned, controlled by the, by the reputation and the thoughts and opinions of the world, then I will not confess you before my Father. You are soiling your garments by an incomplete confession and you will not walk with me. In a semi-fiction play written about the Reformation, one of my favorite guys in history, Martin Luther, in a sneak I need to tell you it's a, it's a semi-fiction play because everybody quotes this of Luther and it's actually, it was written later by a lady called um, Elizabeth Charles as a play. Attributed to a friend of Martin Luther during the, Pro during the Protestant Reformation, but it's actually, it never happened. But you can imagine somebody saying this. He's, we're looking at Sardis and they've got lots of good things going on, but all of them are conditioned by what the world wants them to not say and do. Listen to what one of Martin Luther's friends say in this play. It is the truth which is assailed at any age which tests our faithfulness. It is to confess that we are called, not merely profess. If I profess with the loudest voice and the clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God, except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I'm not confessing Christ. However boldly I may be professing Christianity. Where the battle rages, the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady everywhere else on the battlefield is mere fear and disgrace to him if he flinches at that one point. Jesus is saying to them, I don't care if you've got a thousand things you're doing well, you're not doing them enough to tick off the world or to be a threat to the devil and his kingdom. <laughs> so in doctrine and in obedience, the fear of man 
causes people to draw back. And if that is us, then we are liable to judgment. That's what Jesus is saying here. I will confess your name if your works are complete. Now look at these, these three things. White garments, the book of life, and confessing before the Father. The white garments, like we said before, are mentioned about our deeds. They, by Jesus' imputed righteousness is the first layer, and then we put another layer of our own deeds. And, and constantly in the book of Revelation, it's the language of what a priest would wear. When you wear them, you're worthy to be in God's presence, but not just in God's presence. When you're dressed in these white robes that Jesus gives and your own deeds, you are worthy to be in Christ's presence so that you can serve him in his mission. That's the thing. So Jesus is saying, I will give to those who conquer over the temptation to be lethargic, to be asleep in church. If, if you conquer over that temptation, I will give to you the robes that qualify you for service in my kingdom, both now and into eternity. And he says, I will not block your, uh, uh, block your name out of the book of life. The book of life is, is mentioned five times in Revelation. It's basically a a symbolic book where the names of every Christian who will ever believe in Jesus are written, and they've been written there since the, before the foundation of the world. The Christian's name in that book will never be removed. If you're one who overcomes the temptation to lethargy, then Jesus will say, you're in me. You're in the book. I'll never wipe your name out. There's another book that is mentioned in Revelation. The book of, of the deeds of the damned. The book that, 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 is, that is many books, because it's not enough to just have one book. It's the book that lists every single sin of every unrepentant person that Jesus will open and condemn those who have not believed in Jesus on the last day. The promise of the gospel, and this is to, to the unsaved. If you're not a Christian right now, you don't believe that you follow Jesus, you don't trust in salvation. The promise of the gospel, which is good news for the Christian and you alike, is not only that if you conquer then your name will never be blotted out and you'll live forever. The gospel promises also that every one of your sins in the other book will be blotted out so that none of your sins will be remembered. Your name will be permanently and is already permanently, if you believe, it is already permanently in the book of life and all of your sins will be washed clean from your slate by the blood of Jesus. That's the gospel call. And it's those. It, it's that which, which, which identifies us Christians. We're those who conquer we don't draw back. Our names are written in Jesus' book that is immensely, infinitely inspiring, especially when you compare it to what the Jews used to confess in the first century about the Christians. The Jews had a curse against the Christians that went like this. May the Nazarenes, you know why they call us the Nazarenes, we follow Jesus of Nazareth. The Nazarenes and the sectarians, may they perish as in a moment. Let them be blotted out of the book of life and not be written together with the righteous. Well, Jesus promises exactly the opposite. Your name is in my book, and it will not be blotted out. And then thirdly, he says, he will confess our name before the Father. You know that in this life, when we confess Jesus, now, confessing is not just believing. Confessing is believing, is professing Jesus, and then living it out with your life. When we confess Jesus in this life, we're treated like Jesus in this life. When we confess Jesus to the world, we're treated like Jesus by the world. Persecution, contempt, dislike, annoyance, we're maligned, we're cut off. But when Jesus confesses us before his Father, we are treated like Jesus by his Father. If we confess Jesus now, we'll be treated by the world the same way they treated Jesus. But if, if we do that, Jesus will confess our name before the Father, and we will be treated by the Father the way that the Father treats Jesus, which is eternal blessing, love, adoption, sheer bliss, being honoured and treasured. Jesus closes by saying, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The answer is this. Do you feel any pull and tug on your heart to repent of your sins and believe for the first time in Jesus Christ tonight? The answer is do not quench that. Do not try and walk away from that or go back to sleep. It is an alarm bell ringing saying that hellfire is consuming your life. Immediately. If tonight you realize that Jesus is the only Savior and I need a Savior, then come and talk to somebody tonight about being saved, having your sins forgiven. The rest of us, 
where we see, where we are born again by the Spirit, we have ears that can hear, and where we see Jesus' voice apply to us in this passage, we must repent of cowardice. Where are we drawing back? Where are we obeying enough to not tick off the world and conditioning repentance? Because the world is our true master. Let us repent of that, hold fast to what we first heard and received, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ, our Savior and King. Let's pray. Father God, it is a wonderful mystery, this good news of the gospel, that the eternal God would become a weak human, that the, that the infinite God would become a finite man, that the, the perfect God would join himself to imperfect flesh and yet be perfect and then take to his account our own sin, that the beloved Son would become the accursed, sin-bearing atonement. And then that the cursed son would be the doorway through which the blessings, the floodgates of God's mercies and blessings would pour out onto the sinful human race. Father God, we thank you for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, by which he cleanses us from our sins. We thank you that he has made us righteous by his blood. He has made us children. He has made us heirs in your kingdom. And we thank you also for this, Father, the often neglected blessing that he has given to us a ministry and a job, and responsibilities, and obligations to fulfill. I pray, Lord God, that we would realize that that is a blessing. Working for our Father. Ministering the, the, the blessings and the benefits of the gospel kingdom. I pray, Lord God, that we would desire all the more. That we would, we would feel in ourselves a holy discontent with however much we've served so far. With however many souls that have come to Christ through our prayer and evangelism. Lord, would you make us desire it all the more because there are still millions in our own cities that are perishing. There are billions in our world, in this generation alone, that are still outside of Christ. And Father, we wish to see them come to Jesus. For he has, he has bled and he has died for a, for a church that is innumerable and is from every nation and tongue on earth. We pray, Lord God, that you would keep us as a church and as individuals away from the lulling ourselves back to sleep when we're called to repentance. When the fire alarm goes off, we be quick to repent and quick to pray and not quick to quench the Spirit. Father God, be with us by your Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus Christ, exalted, please bless your church. For you hold the Spirit, and you hold the pastors and the church in your right hand. And we pray that you would bring them together. Fill this church with your Spirit, that we can see your gospel proclaimed and souls saved. We love you. We adore you. We thank you for your grace. And everybody said, in Jesus' name, amen. <coughs>